On this journey, it has been so cathartic to be able to connect with my elders, cats who uh, really um, came of age at a time when there was a, a record-based, commerce-based record industry, and there was literally a bar that you had to clear in order to get a record cut and put out to the masses. And uh, interviewed a lot of different cats from the New England and New York area, Los Angeles, and the bottom line is that all these cats were autodidacts. They were listening to the radio. They were listening to all different types of music. And in many cases, that's how they found their own individual voice. We weren't saturated with visual material, quite frankly, mediocre material. The music was so good. Even the music of our par his parents' generation and my parents' generation. And my guest has uh, carried the torch for the last half century or more. Uh, making radio-friendly hits with real human beings, many of whom I've interviewed. I've been after him for some time. Jesse Collin, young, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Oh, my pleasure, Jake. It's good to be here. It's great to have you, man. You know, can you talk about the first time that you went to the original Birdland? You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember going to Birdland. Okay, I was gonna. I was. I know you were a Queens cat, and I just want. I mean, Al Cooper stumbled in there with Horace <laughs> Silver was there, and I know. I mean, you know, you know. I know you weren't, you know, like no. channeling Ella or Joe Williams, but I, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just feeling that Jesse Collin Young must have. Did you? So, what was your exposure to that? To the to the um, the jazz life, so to speak. When I was in Queens, yeah, the. Um, my exposure was to the opera for operettas and to the ballet. <laughs> I, I mean, my mother loved to dance to big band music, but I mean, she never thought to take me. They were, I don't know what was happening in those days. Um, she never took me to a concert, but I mean, that probably would have been late at night or something. I don't know. I was just, <clears throat> and when I was 10, then we moved out to uh, further out on the island to Garden City. And uh, not, I mean, if there, uh, I was still 10 years old, the most exciting thing <laughs> yeah, you were too young. <laughs> was that um, Alan Freed came on the radio and doo-wop entered my life. Uh, 
and changed it forever. <laughs> and then I discovered maybe, maybe a little later, I discovered Symphony Sid and down on the other end of the dial. And I between the two of those, I had a little brown um, radio that was right, right by my head. I had kind of a built-in bed with a little bookshelf. So I could turn that sucker down to where my parents couldn't hear it. And um, for years, I left it on all night. So God knows what I heard. <laughs> um, maybe more, more, more jazz things down in Symphony Sid's side than Alan Freed. But here was all this music of my generation um, coming at me night and day. Well, okay, so uh, Murray the K as well. I'm not sure if he fit into that. I know Alan. I mean, those cats were legendary um, DJs. And I know guys like Jimmy Cobb, who played with Miles, would mm -hmm. sleep, fall asleep, sleep to Symphony Sid in D.C. <laughs> I mean, you know, he it was uh, it was the Norman Grands era of jazz, you know, jazz at the Philharmonic and mm -hmm. Coleman Hawkins. And so I guess, is, by the way, I'm a Stony Brook cat. So you're you said you moved out of the island, is that right? Yep. When what um could you just talk a little bit about your first exposure? Like your folks were obviously, you know, musically invested and big fans, more in a classical bag, but do you can you talk about the first time you found yourself on the bandstand? You mean to play or to listen? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, just because your generation, um, I mean, Alan Jamal was was in the union at ten years old. Yeah. Uh, other cats were in there with if their dads were playing. Kids were allowed in nightclubs. So, you know, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just like I know yeah. Jesse was. You were shedding on the band. I'm just curious about that seminal first experience. Where it was that? No, I uh, my first experience. Um was being put on a cocktail table when I was eight years old <clears throat> to sing Harvard fight songs at my dad's 25th reunion. And he had, uh, we sang around a piano a lot because uh, there wasn't a television in my house till I was 10. I was really lucky that way. You know, I did sneak over and see Howdy Doody. One kid in the neighborhood had a like a six inch round television set. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I went over there a couple of times, but not at home. What we had was music and what we had in the car. Uh, my dad was an accountant besides being a classical pianist. And he, he was saving money by not buying a radio. So, I mean, if we wanted music, we had to sing. So there I was at eight years old, making my debut at the Harvard club in New York um, singing with crimson and something else flashing mid the strains of victory old Eli's hopes we are dashing that's that's what they call the Yale guys <laughs> into pure obscurity so you know I looked at the lyrics on this uh, stuff and I thought wow big words for big words for an eight-year-old. Eight-year-old. <laughs> and then, of course, all the, uh, the, the songs that I learned at camp and, uh, you know, 100 bottles of beer in the wall and camp town races and 
I don't know where all a lot of that music came from. It came, it came out of the. A lot of those songs came out of the, the minstrel. Period, which is. What nineteen twenties and then forward to. I don't know when. Crazy. I mean, so that was eight years. You were singing. First of all, I mean, that's a serious pedigree. Your dad went to Harvard and, you know, you <laughs> had an Ivy League vibe. And, um, but I just want to be clear, your your folks were not, I mean, I my, my folks were the same way. I mean, they grew up, you know, I was born in 1978, but my folks were, they moved to Stony Brook in 71. And I think, I'm pretty sure that the Youngbloods might have even played Stony Brook, maybe not 71, but. There were like yeah. 100, 150 Jethro Tull, the Grateful Dead. My folks were sitting at home listening to classical music. And I fear that, like, I would not have been hip enough to know what was really happening. But your folks didn't look at the blues as, like, uh, I don't want to say devil's music, but they weren't, they didn't dissuade <laughs> you from the blues. No, they just no. were deeply into classic. Yeah, well, that was, that was what they thought their job was. And it was... You know, I saw Andre Glebski and Maria Tallchief, the first Native American prima ballerina. Yeah, and that would become important to me in my life. Um, Can I, you explain, I, explain, explain, explain. I haven't seen any Native Americans. Uh, it was amazing. And of course, right about that age, this um, this record player showed up in my, my bedroom, which I shared with my sister, who was four years older, in Queens anyway, yeah, until I was 10, yeah, we shared a bedroom, and um, the record player just kind of showed up, hmm. and uh, there was Glenn Miller, Jersey Bounce and uh, mm. In the Mood mm. and it was Enrico Caruso singing some aria that made the hair stand up on the back of my neck and uh, a guy named Sir Harry Lauder who was <clears throat> singing uh, who was a, an honored uh Scottish folk singer singing Coming Through the Rye. And, and there was this little red kind of EP that came with the record player, which had Tex Ritter playing things like rye whiskey. I don't even think my mother knew that that was in there. But you know, <laughs> it was the it was the you were part of the Columbia, you became part of the Columbia Record Club or whatever. You money in the bank. Right yeah, there. I guess. You know that. No, that was a. It was an RCA Victor um, record player. So you know, Tex was on RCA Victor. I mean, and eventually, the Youngbloods would be on RCA Victor. But first, Elvis would be on RCA Victor. You know, but it, all that wonderful recording that went on at Sun. Um, came out on RCA Victor on his first record. And that was a that was a great record. That is well, 
So 19, so what about like um, uh, Sabikas or Segovia? Were, were you, because I, I mean, you, you won a scholarship to Phillips Academy in Andover and you studied the classical guitar. Um, I guess that's, you know, so you were singing around the piano, singing the, the, the Ivy League, uh, the Harvard, the Harvard <laughs> Club. Um, yep. Before you won the scholarship in high school, as you got closer to senior year, were you, did you find yourself in a doo-wop group or something like that? No. Um, uh, they thought I was studying classical guitar, but I was really just, <laughs> take, I was really just taking that, that Stella, oh my God, that $15 Stella home. I mean, to the dorm and, uh, you know, turning on the radio and then try to figure out a, a, uh, a Richie Valens tune or, uh, <laughs> um, I didn't, I didn't speak Spanish at that point, never learned, but I, I did end up learning the lyrics to La Bamba. And so I was busy becoming a, A songwriter. I think I started writing that first year when I, because uh, the monastic life at uh, Phillips Andover of a boys' school. <laughs> the monastic. I love that line, man. That's true. <laughs> I dig. I dig. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. <clears throat> it le leaves a lot of yearnings churning around in you, and <laughs> and I was looking for some some way to blow this steam off and it, and it wasn't going to be with girls because they were way down the road somewhere and and uh, we hardly saw them so yeah music was there and I wrote my first song to my girlfriend uh, Dottie I think but the lyrics you were, are <clears throat> you, were and, you were eventually I'm, I'm assuming you got um, um, kicked out for going into the girls' side, the co-eds. I mean, eventually they were just like, you know, yeah. It, no, it became it became too monastic for for Jesse Collins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was already. I had, I had, uh, I'd had my first lover before I went there, and I, so that made it even more difficult. Um, for me. You know, but but at the same time, I'm listening to Johnny Smith. Oh. You know, I bought a Johnny Smith album because there was a guitar on it. I didn't know anything about jazz. And I'm listening to this beautiful singer, um, a female uh, jazz singer. I'm trying to think of her name. Was it Ella? No. Um, Maybe Helen Merrill, Moonlight in Vermont kind of thing. I'm trying to think about that. Yeah, it would be Moonlight in Vermont, but she was really Julie London. That's it. Yeah. Oh, man. That's killer, man. I was in love with Julie London and a beautiful picture of her on the album cover. And uh, so that was my my love life, Johnny Smith. And, and then I got, you know, I, I probably got down to Tal Farlow. Um, before I said, well, this stuff's getting a little too far out for me. What's Dude, you on? went, you already went to the Holy Grail with Farlow. That's good <laughs> enough, man. I cannot believe. Yeah, you were poking around because that was, I mean, well, it was I, 
Go ahead. Yeah, it was just blind. I mean, it was a, another record that I bought because of, there was a guitar on it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's how I discovered eventually T-Bone Walker. I asked the guy in the record, this was later, I'm probably 18. I, I got kicked out of Andover for playing the guitar. And I talk about the big red sign that said, dude, you're going in the wrong direction here. You need to go to Ohio State and 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 live behind a record store. <laughs> and that's what I did. And uh, my dad had bought me a tape recorder because he, I don't know. I, I think they knew what where I was going. The yeah. first time I sang a song for my mother, I came home that fall. You know, I, I went uh, 11th and 12th grade to Andover, and I came home that fall and played her, uh, I think it was Leon and the Hearts did a song called Teardrops or something, a real tearjerker. And she just cried. And I said, wow, I got something. You know, of course, it was my mom, but she had pretty pretty snobby musical taste. I mean, for good music, what whatever kind it was, if it was beautifully played or sung, and if it was not so beautifully played, you know, she she was there. She'd been a violinist herself. And I, I, I found her old violin in the cellar once, but I never got to hear her play it. She had given it up long before uh, I came along. Well, I need to ask you, just talking to younger for younger cats out there um because i know what you're saying i mean your mom she wanted she had a high bar she was a very tasteful person but in terms of like the emotive quality of music um how do you, how have you learned to cultivate over time obviously you've been doing this for a long time a lot of your songs even on your solo records um are very emotive Mm -hmm. and, uh, are emotional you know a lot of people would say with jake feinberg i have a gift of getting inside the musician's head being able to pull out stories they've never talked about before mm -hmm. but i'm not going to say there's any kind of real logic to it but in terms of being able to get inside the soul of the audience um what is, how, how have you cultivated how did you cultivate that early on to me that's what we're talking about is authenticity and uh, whether you're playing acoustic music, folk music, electric, country rock, whatever, can you just talk about how you, you know, not that you stay away from the from the beauty and the perfection and the riffology and that stuff, but ultimately burning and getting people to really feel the music. Well, I I don't think I had any choice really. They just um, you put out your first record which I made in four four hours one night. A man named Bobby Scott loved my, just lo loved my, he said, you are so ignorant. I <laughs> You're love perfect. it. You're perfect. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was an incredible jazz composer. If you go back and dig up Bobby Scott's records, man, what a player, what a composer. He was, he was uh, composing for... For those big bands, or or do, I mean, can you hit me to some? No, of no, he's he was writing trio and and uh, oh my usually god, two and, and quintet stuff. But 
very modern and but but not weird <laughs> totally you know, i know it's not at that time man. yeah still melodic and uh so that's what he meant. Yeah. And I, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about music really. I mean, I took a few piano lessons, but no, I had no idea of theory and I was playing by myself for years, you know, how he knew I was ready to make a record was beyond me because I just mainly had been playing in living rooms and my bedroom and, you know, occasionally at a party or something like that, but I had almost no experience Maybe I'd played one paying gig. Um, no, that was I think that was after my record came out. So, and he said, okay, I'm going to call you Pigfoot from now on. <laughs> and uh, because you're so ignorant and I really love it. And we have got to make a record before you learn how to play the right way. Because this is great. This, this is, you made this up here. I love You're it. No, you weren't jaded at that. He, he saw that you had not gotten. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you were totally innocent. Yeah, I was. T I was totally innocent of form, structure, and of course, playing with others. So you know, I mean, one verse would be twelve bars, and the next verse could be thirteen and a half, and the and the chorus could come and or turn into a half a chorus. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 love I was that. just yeah. I would just in, I was in the moment and make you know either having learned this stuff, but I'm still. You know, if it's an old folk song, I'm still making up an arrangement and just chugging it together in the way I hear it. And of course, Elvis was there in my head, and all the beautiful doo-wop singers were there. And um, and ja and jazz was there, and Stan Getz was there. You know, uh, for a while uh, until I found a sax player in the mid um in the mid-20s and, and formed the song for julie band um i was looking for a tenor player who would play with my voice the way that stan gets played with astrid gilberto because i had wandered into a movie called black orpheus absolutely at ohio state and you know i guess it was because it was a campus, you know, and, and the movie theater was right across from the campus. They, I don't know. There were a lot of yahoos at Ohio State. That all they cared about was... <laughs> so I don't know whether they made any money off of Black Orpheus, but it blew me away. And the samba became, you know, the samba became as important to me as the as the blues was becoming. Right at, kind of right at the same time. The, the power of it the power the power is so different and yet so it's <clears throat> what you're talking about the transmission of emotion in both of those kind of musics and t-bones music and gets in gilberto i mean that's that stuff comes across and just goes right into your heart oh you're cooking right now yeah yeah um that was uh Orpheus was Antonio Carlos Jobim, is that right? I'm trying to, it was Astrid in that soundtrack too, or that just sort of that Brazil, that bossa kind of got you? Yeah, the bossa got me. I, I, they were not in that movie, but um, my interest. The soundtrack though, yeah. yeah uh, they were not in the soundtrack. It was Luis, Luis Bonfa. Bonfa, thank you, Bonfa. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And wow. uh, I mean, I think Gilberto 
covered some of his tunes, um, uh, but he was the one. That's right. Yeah, who wrote the soundtrack? And but you know all that, all the all the dancing and stuff, and when they're doing the carnival scenes, and uh, it was just you know it was it was another part of this beautiful world. But I had no idea this was going on at the same time I'm living my life in, in behind the record store there. So this is beautiful, actually, because I, I often think that somehow cats like yourself were totally hip to this stuff in the happening in the real time. And you had no idea that it was happening right then. Yeah. That is unreal. And the guy in the record store, I said, you know, I have a tape recorder. This was pre-shrink wrap. <laughs> and um, I'm saying, could I? I can't really afford this record. But what is this guy doing with the guitar up behind his head? And this was T-Bone's, the best of T-Bone, produced by Ahmed Erdogan. I didn't have any idea who that was, but mm -hmm. I, I knew this stuff was good. And uh, I said, could I just take it home? I'll just play it once and I'll tape it. I'll bring it back. Perfect. No fingerprint jelly, you know, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and we'll just put it back in the rack and no, nobody will know. <laughs> and he let me do that. And this, this, this is the way I, this is the way I got my first Ray Charles record, my first B.B. King record, T-Bone. Those are the ones that are most memorable because each of them just talk about emotive performers. T-Bone and the most restrained of all of those kind of. Mm. Uh, but, you know, B.B. King, I heard him say this on the radio himself when he was still, he'd do these little chat things on his station. Sure. And, um, he said, I only played sacred music when I was young until I heard T-Bone Walker. Whoa. So T-Bone, and sometimes when I hear Chuck Berry play, I know, I, I know that he listened to T-Bone too. <laughs> it's there in his, uh, in his playing. Undeniable, uh, totally. Yeah. So... You're telling me that that at you know Ohio State. I just I want to I want to go back. Were you somebody that uh, I mean this is I don't think the Beatles got on Ed Sullivan until '64. I mean everything was still. I mean, in my own ignorant little mind, was in an acoustic bag. I mean, but you were already feeling you were already plugging in at that point, or you uh, were yeah. off. On yeah, that. I had a, a probably my. First guitars were electric guitars. Wow. Although the first one that was worth owning was a harmony copy of the blonde, um, the blonde jazz guitar that um, Chuck plays. Um, I don't know whether it's a Gibson or an Epiphone, but he used to play it, you know, and it's a hollow body, but it's not a big fat jazz hollow body. I've, it's like an ES-335 or something. And so this was a harmony copy of that blonde, beautiful wood. And yeah, that was my, I mean, besides the Stella that I learned on, which had action, you know, like an 
inch and a half. I don't know how I ever played a chord on that thing. It was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Chipolina, Quicksilver, all those cats, they were playing Dan Electros. I mean, the whole thing was just, I mean, um, I just, when you, okay, so you mm -hmm. get to New York and um, there's a little so, bit. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, eight, I'm 18 there in, uh, I came out of school when I was 17. So I'm 18 when I'm, I'm going through this with, and I'm learning about the blues and and samba music, um, and then for some reason, oh, I, I somehow I I dropped out of school after one one quarter because I read Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Oh boy. And I thought, all I all I know is like, all I know is the white suburbs. This is where I've spent my life. I uh, I need to <laughs> I need to find out what's going on in the world. So, oh well, <clears throat> I hitchhiked to Florida. I bought a little motor scooter. I got a job in a Yankee Clipper hotel at in um, Fort Lauderdale. And then had to drive the motor scooter back home, you know, at like 35 miles an hour. This it's was unreal, man. All the way to Pennsylvania in the winter. No so, way. Yeah, there's a whole chapter in my, I'm writing an autobiography. This is so beautiful. You're, you, you're, it wasn't a motorcycle, it was a motor scooter. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I mean, it was 150 bucks. That was all I could afford. It doesn't matter. You drove that thing back to the northeast in the winter. <laughs> that is insane, uh, dude. Yeah, it was. At the end of the trip, and in the middle of the night, I'm 65 miles from home. Uh, like six in the morning, I pull into this diner, and there's nobody in there but me. And this, the guy behind the counter, is a Marine veteran, and. Uh, he says, hey, kid, uh, take off your gloves. Let me look at your hands. And um, I said, yeah, man, they're pretty cold. Uh, uh, and he said, you know, my division was cut off in Korea, and we had to hike out to the ocean to get picked up and, and to retreat and get out of there. And uh, he said, my sergeant saved me my legs by making me jump in a snowbank naked. And um, he said, I think you might have frostbite. And I'm gonna, so he made this big, you know, 20 gallon pot of ice water and had me put my, you know, hands up to my wrist in there. And he said, this way, if, if, you, if you have any um, frostbite, it will warm up very slowly, and that's what we want. It won't die. Uh, if it warms up fast, it'll die. Uh, I mean, that part of the skin. So, this is so that, you just went to Never Everland on me. I, I, this is on the you're telling me that he, his, his sergeant, in order to cure frostbite, so to speak, he had him jump in a snowbank naked. Yeah, because his, his legs were, his legs were frozen. Not completely that he couldn't walk, but he had frostbite all not only on his toes but his 
you know. And so the reality is you hit that cold with some other cold and it slowly brings the heat back, not totally quickly, but slowly. Right. Yeah. I just. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that I turned that in, in at Ohio State when I dropped out again, I turned that. I took the refund, which is really not mine. It was my father's and turned it into a Triumph motorcycle because the same kind that that Marlon rode in, the wild ones, I had to have a Triumph, so. Well, just, just uh, did you ever cross paths with, uh, I, I, I wrote a book on um, the interviews I did with the remaining Mary Franksters. Uh, did you ever cross paths with Ken Kesey? Or, I mean, you talk about Kerouac. Those guys were inspiring. It's just so beautiful to hear you say that that was inspirational to you. Yeah. So many of the cats that I, you know, from that same era, it doesn't matter where they grew up, that put them, that put them way outside the lines, you know? And yeah. What, what, you know, I know, the, did you ever cross paths with Kesey or any, or even the beat or the beats? No, I didn't. Um, I think I came a little too late to San Francisco and they may have moved on to Portland or. You're darn right. They went to Eugene. No, no. You went at the perfect time, by the way, the yeah. uh, Pacific high recorders. Are you kidding me? Perfect time to go. Um, no. So here's the thing. When you, I'm just going to throw out some names here. I mean, when I interviewed Ramblin' Jack Elliott, he was talking about, racing range rovers with johnny cash outside the gaslight theater this is like 63 maybe 64 <laughs> i mean where were you down in that village area i mean i used to marinate down there in my own little way my grandparents lived on astro in astro place and and uh, but it was a different scene mm -hmm. then but were you would you have were you consider were you kind of a folky or were you actually because i mean get, reverend gary davis was being led around by cats there was a lot of there was a yeah. lot of like where did you fit in with that because obviously you, you leaned towards electric blues as well and this is years but this is several years before the cafe go go the young bugs weren't even formed then no they no they weren't but i was i was still going to i met Lydon hopkins in the village when i was still perry miller and uh <laughs> and he called me perry and um uh yeah and we became friends and he needed a process in his hair. And, uh, and I had a friend who was a black barber and did that kind of stuff. And, and we, so we had, Oh my God, I, I took, I took lightning to a, a motorcycle race. I, you know, I was so kind of race blind. Nobody talked in my family any shit about any kind of racial stuff nasty stuff i didn't i never heard any of that stuff so i i remember the first time when i hitchhiked i, I saw a colored bathroom in virginia and i thought what's a colored bathroom i mean i had no clue <laughs> that's so um I took light into a motorcycle race oh my god <laughs> it's legendary <laughs> In Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and this oh was boy. On, oh this, boy. Was, this was on a Sunday, and yeah, that it was white people, and there was lightning, and he he figured it was Sunday, so he wore this lovely blue serge suit, and of course 
nobody else. <laughs> yeah, nobody else. But, but, you know, I think he was getting used to being around white people because his audiences were most, you know, the whole folk thing was in the beginning was a lot of white kids. You're darn right, man. Just mesmerized by this magical music. So, yeah, so I'm there going to NYU when I'm 19, and I meet Lightning, and... Um, How'd you meet him, by the way? Was he, was he gigging? Was he playing the village? I don't know. He was, yeah, he was gigging in the village. Yeah. And, but then he was holding court at wherever, you know, people, <laughs> people put you up at apartments nobody was staying in hotels sure somebody was putting him up in their apartment on the lower east side and we would go over there and listen and i met this i met this one kid he's he's got a bandolero of harmonicas i'm thinking whoa you know like a big a belt that goes completely around your body but oh, full of I love, I love it yeah <laughs> i love this john sebastian that was wow. our first meeting, yeah. Wow. He was the, so we would just all go there and, and Lightning would play, you know, would drink gin and very, very carefully. And I never saw him drunk and and play. And he was, you know, so, you know, the Love and Spoonful was there. The Young Bloods were there. I mean, the beginnings of this, we were there, you know, bringing it home um, and making a home in the blues. Um, yeah, that was really exciting. So that's kind of. I just want to be clear, did, any, did, 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 did anything go down at that race, at that racetrack? Did anything go down there? No, no. Yeah. Everybody behaved. Nobody, himself. yeah. And I just, and, you know, Lightman, he seemed fine. And. <laughs> Yeah, he seemed fine. It was only later that I looked back on him and thought, "What a what a crazy thing to do!" And yet, I don't know. Lightning was up for it, so it was only maybe an hour and a half in the car. I wonder whose car we used. I'm getting this like I, I I'm uh, getting this flash. I'm trying to remember who told me. I think it was Banana or somebody else. But were you? Mm -hmm. Did you actually re at some point were you down in Alphabet City? Were the Young Bloods down there? I was down there. You were down because there was yeah. like that was the most I cannot even believe the melting pot of music that was going on down there. Yeah. It was, I think Larry Coriel was down there. I mean, it was insane. Right. He was. Yeah, he told me later uh, once that he said, "Oh yeah, you lived on C too, and uh, yeah, Thirteenth Street and." I, I lived all over the alphabet, you know. I lived across from the five spot for a while. Oh, I, my. Wait, were you going to tell me that? that so you didn't go to the original bird. Like, were you going <laughs> to see Monk? Did you go stumble in to see Thelonious or anything? No, nah, man, I couldn't afford the five spot. I mean, I could think it was a $15 cover or something like that. Jeez, that's expensive for that time. But I did. Um, oh, my God. I did see... I mean, right out my window. Who is the genius piano player who is somewhat um, crazy? 
for it. Let me think. Uh, <laughs> black, black Hat or who, who are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, Black Hat. Somebody in, in Miles's uh, orbit or that, you know, up there at the top, the great writer. Um, I mean, like Red Garland or Wynton Kelly or, I mean, was it wasn't it like, wasn't like Herbie or anything like that. No, no. So who goes back further than that? Who's, who writes songs that are a little out there, but amazing? I'm just, I feel terrible that I don't, I don't I'm not <laughs> pull through on this. Um, That's okay. We'll think of it at some point. Absolutely. No, this is so, um, so, but you, where were, at that point, you, did you wind up having, like, I'm talking before Soul of the City Boy, uh, yeah. were you, did, where were like the, were you still just playing house parties? I mean, or were you, were you playing club dates and, um, were you playing uh, solo or was it more in a trio for like I'm just curious about that amalgamation of 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 that time just because I mean you had Bill Evans with you know th there's these seminal recordings from the Vanguard from 61 I mean you mm -hmm. can't beat jazz at that time birth of the cool oh was it Gil Evans now he's white uh mm -hmm. you know it's like I mean it was just percolating and then you had he wears a funny little hat. A Thelonious Monk. Yes. Monk owned the five spots. That's why yeah. I was so Thelonious. Yeah. You saw Thelonious outside your window. I saw Thelonious out there talking to a telephone pole. <laughs> he was having a conversation. <laughs> oh my God. This is priceless. This is it. This and is this it. Was, and, uh, you know, and. Uh, I guess I had only seen him on a record cover or something like that, but I recognized him. I said, wow, that's, that's Monk. And he's talking to the telephone pole. Well, hey, whatever. Yes, but all over the, all over the Alphabet City. When I finally left, um, when the Youngbloods, when we fell in love with San Francisco, I was living on Houston and Ridge Street. So, so Perry Miller, who of course changed his name when he made his first record, and because, um, you know, Perry Como was the only famous Perry, and I thought, this music is nothing like Perry Como. That's so right. That's we're right. going to skip this name and make up a a good one that's part country and part blues and and part yeah part rebel right yeah so i did i love it so much go ahead so perry miller moves from ridge street and houston to a place called millerton point on tamales bay about 35 miles from san francisco and builds a house on a ridge top. Yeah. When I, I was writing about it, and I looked at it and I said, wow, Barry Miller moves to Milliton Point and it moves from Ridge Street to Ridge Top. Oh, man. This is who is writing this script? <laughs> I'm, uh, it's, did you, 
so I guess that's that's the nexus there because it, it doesn't it's it's like a little bit fuzzy in the in the history of it. Um, mm -hmm. You met when did you first? Well, I want to be clear the 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 album with Bobby Scott, um, yeah. Soul of a City Boy. That, yeah. I I know you're a very humble cat, but I don't. There's no way he was just like he didn't find you walk talking to a telephone pole in Alph Alphabet City. I mean, you you probably you were already out, sort of just being yourself. Is that how he discovered you originally, or he? No, uh, my sister's husband was a newsman at CBS, and uh, when I quit school, she thought, "Oh my God, she was in New York too." Harry's going to starve to death. So, John, get, did you find somebody at CBS that who does the music there or something and would know somebody? You know, we can get him an audition. And by God, he went in there and found this guy named, oh, my God. Yeah, this is a bad time of day. I should remember to take my... Oh, yeah, you look. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up for you. Don't worry about it. You're talking yeah. about the yeah, it, some guy at CBS. Was it? Wait, no, wait, was it? Uh, it wasn't like Tom Wilson or anyone like that. No, it. No, it. This is at CBS News. He did the the uh, Walter Bishop. He was a from somewhere in the uh, in the Caribbean. And he was a songwriter, and he had written songs that Ella recorded, and several no. other famous people. Yes, and there he, you know, but he's got the day job at, um, you know, probably really steady, good money at CBS, you know, um, and he could still write at home. So Walter Bishop, and Walter Bishop Jr. became a kind of a relatively famous jazz pianist. His son. I actually have all of his records. That's how obsessed <laughs> I. That is the so most it, dude. He's my favorite freaking player, by the way. So this was his father. Right. This was his father. His father, yes. Oh, so his father, uh, yeah. So I there I go into this big black building, and I, you know I'm just going in there cold with my guitar, and uh, and he said, "Come on, play me a few tunes." And he said, "Hey, that's pretty good. You wrote that one." He said. You go home and write write five more tunes, and then um, I'll get you. A, I know who would love your stuff. I mean, he knew instantly that he was going to send me to Bobby Scott, and that Bobby Scott would say, "You are so ignorant. I love it." <laughs> and the, and then when he couldn't get me into Darren, Darren owned the company that Bobby Scott worked for, and and it, he was keep. You know, as soon as he heard me and loved me, he wanted to, he wanted me to sing for Darren. And Darren was in and out of there, in and out of there, in and he got tired of it. And he said one night, we're going to make a record tomorrow, kid. So I said, oh, shit, my guitar's in hock. And luckily I had a a friend who, at NYU who later became the Youngblood's manager, Stuart Cutchins, had a Martin. And I borrowed it. And he must have put strength on it, I don't know, uh, because it it sounded fine. Um, and yeah, I showed up with my borrowed guitar, and he just said, hey, kid, how you doing? Sit over there on that stool, 
and play me everything you know. And four hours later, I had a record. He he had pulled the songs already. He had, um, you know, set them up in, I always forget that word, well, sequence. And he had sequenced, he'd pulled the tunes, sequenced it, and had the guy, before we left, the guy cut a, you know, I'd never seen him, a demo cut before, you know, one, one at a time kind of record that he could take in the next day and throw it on Darren's desk. Absolutely, say, yeah. Getting the ear of this. Yeah, so, yeah, no, I was just playing in, you know, very, why I was ready, I don't know, but I was ready. But it was about, really through your, it was it was through the connection uh, your of your sister's yeah. husband. Uh, it wasn't like you were, uh, you know, by the way, going back to Corey Elf for a minute, a lot of people, when I interviewed him, I, um, Rest in peace. Yeah, he wanted he wanted Bloomfield's gig with Dylan. You know, he was a folk. I mean, they were everybody was a folk rock kind of cat. But um, you, so you were basically not a known quantity within the. Were you known within the Lower West Side of New York? I mean, it, with those other cats, or were, were no. this? This was just no. like they're like I. My gut tells me this cat can really. He can tell tell some stories, and and they yeah. just let you go. Yeah, he just yeah, just lucky. What was the? Did you do you remember the first time you you heard the, like back then just with the radio the way it was set up? Did you get did you get airplay from that album? Did any songs get some radio play? Oh yeah, four in the morning, went right on the radio in uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh -huh. On a pop, 50,000-watt pop station, this one guy, Dick Summer, would started playing, sprinkling in folk music at night because Cambridge was the center of the, of the East Coast folk re revolution. It was Absolutely. not the village. I mean, um, you know, there were only about three Gerties, uh, places that paid, you know, besides the basket houses. But I spent, I was lucky enough, that was another, you know, I had a lot of luck in my lifetime, right about when I, I was going to school, I met this gal, I decided, to, her, her father wanted us to get married, and I said, what the hell, I mean, we're living together, what difference could it make? So, we did it, and he said, well, you're not going to school anymore, so I got a job at the Rockefeller Foundation. <laughs> buying medical equipment for South American um, universities. And uh, and then I had a rent strike came. I think, I don't know whether that, whether I'd made the record, no. Yeah, I made the record. The record I was, was still, 64. Yeah, the record came out in 64. Still, hmm? the, yeah. That record came out in 64, yeah. Yeah, I, I made it in... 63 but it was on capital and they had the beatles so it took a year for it to come out they just stuck it on a shelf somewhere and then uh, when when things you know cooled down after they sold a few hundred million records or whatever it was they they got around to putting it out and as soon as it was out and bobby scott said to me man he said listen kid you don't have an album you can't work you have an album 
you can work. And boy, that record came out. Capital took it right to the Club 47. And she said, Betsy Sigan said, well, he's a little bit too much like Elvis for me. But <laughs> I'll, I'll take him. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, dude. I mean, just for the record, Club 47, uh, yeah. the, Rowan, the Rowan Brothers, Queskin Jug Band, Joan right. Baez, Chuck Israels was there. I mean, it was the most Bill Keith. Ultimately, though, that you and Corbett, they they brought you up for some gigs. It was so there was basically you were working the Rockefeller Center, and then what was the gateway for you to get up? Because I think that's where you where the Youngbloods oh. formed Cambridge. Is that up there? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, after the Rockefeller, what happened was we went on a rent strike. Right. In the building. So I quit the Rockefeller and started playing the the uh, the basket houses. Your father-in-law was all right with that. <laughs> Sorry. Did, did you did you ever cross paths with Wavy Gravy? Oh yeah. Okay. This is so beautiful. I just continue, Jeff. This is making my day. Go ahead. <laughs> you went to the bat. You started doing the basket houses, which actually, if you played your ass off, you could probably make some decent dough. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that rent strike went on for nine months. So I mean, I could live on ten or fifteen dollars which I could make at a basket house. I could eat and feed my wife, you know, I mean, so that's the, and, and have, you know, six hours to rehearse and practice, you know, and ex expand my repertoire and listen to records. And so that was a very, and a fellow named Caesar Peter was, was my, a tall black guy just recently come out of the army paratroopers and um he had a, a lovely deep voice and he loved jazz so he kept pushing me over into i had to learn some simple jazz tunes for him um so which i had never played on the guitar for him to sing because we were kind of doing a duo wow and, uh, so that's what i did in the in the and you know something had happened maybe herb gart who was my Youngblood's first manager and mine, he must have seen me at a at a club or something. I don't remember. How would he discover me before my record? Or maybe it wasn't until after my record. I mean, once you have a record, yeah, managers want you. People give you gigs. It's right. quite, it, wonderful. I, uh, and then I went down and played Gertie's Folk City after Club 47. And one of my pals from fourth grade came down to see me and I was telling him all about I saw him after the show and he he said oh, I enjoyed that's good and, and I said oh yeah I got a record deal man this is amazing it's an amazing life and he looks at me kind of straight pan and says uh, I make records too and I'm thinking Artie Artie what was Artie's last name was Artie's last name? Garfunkel. <laughs> oh my God, it's Artie oh Garfunkel. My God. Yes, one of, that is great. One, of the most, one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me. And um, <laughs> so I had just gone, he was in, in my grade, and I think Paul Simon was in the same grade, but I, mm -hmm. I can't remember him in the back of the room, but he never spoke to me. He never seemed to... I, 
it wasn't, I don't know whether he was talking to many people. And I think Artie told me his mother was a teacher at the school. Um, or I think it was PS 72 or something. Anyway, I went home to Artie's house once and walking along the parkway, he's singing, um, they try to tell us we're too young. Mm. That was Nat Cole's big hit. And I'm thinking like, whoa, what a voice. Then I never saw him again until I was telling him what a great <laughs> I love this record deal I had in show business. Meanwhile, Sound of Silence is on the fucking radio. Just yeah, they had gotten working. out of the gate pretty well, but I, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, <laughs> you know, so this is sort of a, an S this is more of a, a global question, but I really, you know, you're the perfect person to ask because, you know, all the support that you got, the cultivation of, of talent ultimately getting it, getting record deals, being able to sing for your supper. Because this is the real, this is the question. Jesse Colin Young, how has the significance of music changed in our culture? I ask you that now because all my friends and my peers who are out there playing original music live have, they have to get in a sprinter van they have to, if they're going to make any money, it's going to be at the merch table. They make no money on gigs. So they're only going to make money on merchandise. And they've got to be out for at least three weeks or more to actually get ahead a little bit. They have no roadies and nobody. I mean, you right. are you have to wear 10 hats now. And I know you went off on your own. You, start, you know, you left the, the industry, so to speak. I just want you to talk about also the fact that guys like, um uh, Bobby and uh Walter Bishop Sr., just as two examples. These guys were music lovers. They knew yeah. what good music was. So was Ahmed Erdogan. So was Jerry Webb. Yeah. These guys were A and R guys, but they loved music. The bean counters weren't involved. Is it as simple to say that the bean counters just got too involved in the creative process of music? I think so. Um and then uh, you know in some ways destroyed it certainly yeah. i mean and and uh and the streamers came along and finished it off that's right although it's a it, for listeners it's it's a marvelous world i remember my son 5 years ago i was playing in a band he went to berkeley college of music mm. and i went to, i went to his senior rehearsal and i said gee uh, um his name's tristan um I was just coming out of like five years of Lyme disease. I was off the road. I couldn't do. As far as I could travel was from, <laughs> from my studio into the into the music room to uh, to do a few videos of, of tunes. That was about as far as I wanted to get from my home. And you'd be uh, exhausted. You'd be exhausted after that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I was coming out of it. I started writing again and I heard these young people play and I said to me I want a band just like this um it was a band luckily I mean it had no singers so I just you know I'm listening to it and I'm putting myself <laughs> into the band in my head wow. and saying wow. it's perfect wow it's perfect. so 
It was it was just they were playing like instrumental jams and stuff. There was no yeah. vocals. That is so hip, man. I got to talk to Tristan, man. That is <laughs> unbelievable. So you just you sort of started to hear your voice in there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to remember the reason that I started telling you about. No, I want because we're talking about the significance of music and how it's changed. Oh yeah. Um. I mean, it's. It's horrific. I mean, here's the point. You dropped, you didn't even finish Ohio State, right? No, no. most cats that went to Berkeley during your time or in this or Schofield, those they never finished even the gigs were there was so much money to be made. I mean, I mean, mm -hmm. a, a music, I guess here's the other question you can rip out of the floor is yours. Is a musician still seen as a viable profession in our society, or is music a musician's gift to the world? I'm not saying it's ever been easy, just saying now. It's it's just it seems there's a lot of deviousness out there and there there there's almost a systemic uh, move to stifle original creative spiritual music. Well, I, I think it's going to take it's her. Uh, it's a train wreck. Yeah, it's absolutely horrific the way they have. I mean them getting away <laughs> with paying these minuscule amounts of money well, for, yeah, it's hard. for streamers. Yeah. I mean, when I was on Warner Brothers in the 70s, you know, I could sell three or 400,000 records and make three or $400,000. I mean, that's where my royalties were at after starting off on RCA paid us at one and a half percent of retail. And uh, then you split that up about seven ways. Right. William Morris is taking a piece and the manager's taking a piece. And the, <laughs> I mean, but still it was a living. I mean, you, you could, could go, I mean, you, you, the young bloods could Joni Mitchell, Bruce Springsteen, you, they guys, like, cats like you could go on tour and lose money and it didn't matter the record company could write it off because they were making so much money on your records yeah and so that you're i just want to say you think it's gonna we're, we're looking at one generation or two before this there's a correction if there's even no we need a, we need a strike we need a big strike and to have a good strike you've got to have you've got to have a good union and um you know, I'm a SAG after member, so but I'm not yep. writing any movie, uh, uh, and right. not, an, not an active member. But that's just because I was a. Uh, I forget the name of where what my original union was. Well, there was the local 802 in New York, but I, I mean, that yep, made, I was part of I was part of 802 and 802, baby, yeah, and um, the other one was. Radio, radio registry, television, and radio artist. Uh, it was called Radio Registry, right? No, no. no it, okay, it's bigger than that. It combined with SAG AFTRA about wow. five years ago, and um, wow. so we need a, yeah, we need a real progressive union like SAG AFTRA with hundreds of thousands of members who play music, who are willing to strike. 
and stop recording and stop playing uh, long enough so that it hurts. People miss it. <laughs> and I mean, um, it's so wonderful to talk to you, man. You have a very beautiful way of storytelling. Mm. I'm just curious about, I, I, I just, there's, like when you I know Jim Morrison when with the well, I've interviewed Densmore a couple of times and you know Jim was like well I don't know how to write a song so we're all going to get credit for this we're all going to put the you know the doors we're all going to share publishing credits mm -hmm. and it was a it was a team thing Jerry Garcia was like that too uh, mm -hmm. everybody got the same kind of cut of money and I'm like I really you know after vetting the Youngbloods and this iconic live album with six days on the road the best version i've ever heard of any song in my life the 70 it's you know beautiful um oh is that, that they don't they don't the version of yeah what's that which version of six days on the road was that was that from, it was the live it was a maybe it was done at pacific high recorders or columbia columbus recorders so 72 it, it was live it, it was it i'll you sure it was live it wasn't on your your solo album. It was a Youngbloods version. Oh, okay. Because yes, it was on the. I mean, Six Days on the Road was on the solo album. No, it was. There's one version of it that's just. It was either a radio broadcast or a live show that eventually got released on record. It's out on YouTube. It's unreal. Oh. But my point, I'm getting the point is that I, later on I'm starting to dig around and I'm starting is to it, see. Is there a harmonica player on it? I'm gonna look it up. Hold on. But I the the point I I, 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 this is what I wanted to get is that that, that mm -hmm. I'm starting I'm starting to see albums on you know from Banana with the legendary my my one of my heroes who I never met but he's he's deep in my soul is Joe Bauer and mm -hmm. then you know there's all this stuff going on in Bolinas and I'm like you know what these cat I believe I just want you to talk about being the kind the kind of leader that you were and how you looked at leadership in terms of not just sharing the wealth because all those guys wound up having you know they had they, they could they had bread in their pockets they were cutting their own records after yeah. the young bloods disbanded and i'm like that's because the jesse you epitomized the leadership of that time uh, tell me if i'm wrong i mean did you did you make it a point to that everybody was part of what the the living breathing organism of the young bloods Yep. Yep. It was even all the way around. Even the manager was a partner, uh, an e a, uh, you know, an even partner with the rest of us. And it worked. Um, and it really worked for some things. It was the right thing to do at the right time, but I swore I'd never do it again. I'm just now, but I mean, I really, Um, you know, I'm if I'm the architect, then I really want to have the last say into what goes, whether we're headed in the right direction. You know, it's almost like I'm more comfortable sailing the ship with all hands on deck, but being the guy who makes the decisions at whether we're going left or right. I love it. Yeah, the captain. <laughs> yeah.
all hands on deck. And that's the that that's really more that I was today. That's another young blood spirit. Young blood spirit, even Stephen, all the way around, and um, and that's and we just it was a wonderful band, and we just kind of it wore out toward the end, and I began to hear something different. I I was. Um, when I moved to the Ridgetop, the only station that came in to my FM radio was KJ from San Francisco. Oh my God, this is so great! <laughs> so you couldn't answer a better time. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So I I built the the house probably in '72, and all I could listen to was jazz. And then I got into it, and I started buying Miles Davis records and all of the classic um, Coltrane and um so and i wanted to hear i went back to wanting to hear that saxophone as a second voice yes and i found jim rothermel or actually the guys in my band my my brother-in-law the keyboard player scotty lawrence um david hayes wonderful bass player i thought i you know i just am like i don't even want to rush through this man this is so important Ozzy Ollers, man, this is like, Ozzy's a dear friend, man. I mean, this is, you know, I was going to, Jesse, I was going to ask you, I, you know, I, we just cooked through 70 minutes here. I, is it possible that we could do a set two maybe in a couple, week or two? I just, yeah. I, I don't want to shortchange this. Um, I, no, I'm that'd, be, that'd yeah. be great. Uh, it's such an, you know, I was going to say, I just want, before I let you go, this, this album is called Beautiful. Live in San Francisco, 1971. Hmm. Bauer, Michael Caine, Jesse, Banana. Dude, it is burning. It's the most burning. It's the, my favorite album. And I don't think it came out for a while. I don't think it was released at the time. But I mean, no. it's, dude, I'm telling you, Chris Robinson from the Black Crows started a band and he 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 they they were playing that this version of six days on the road it is the it is the funkiest before i let you go in set one this is the final question for you my brother tell me what what made joe bauer the best was he number one the first trap drummer you ever played with and number two what made him the best country rock drummer around that was just just his talent you know he was really his experience was jazz so you had you had a jazz drummer from memphis you had a a military brat from tifton georgia <laughs> who loved ragtime that was corbett right and you have banana and i who were both born in new york <laughs> he grew up in santa rosa in california and i grew up you know mostly in the city and then went back to the city for college, you know? Um, so, you know, banana was into Jimmy Reed. I, I was into all of it, but not, I'd never played. I'd never really played in a band. I mean, I'd played with a couple of guys for, you know, three tunes or something like this, but I, I was, and then all of a sudden I'm the bass player. Well, so that's, be, that, that that blew my mind that you were like, you already had two guitars, so you picked up the bass and started playing, which is just classic. Well, I had, yeah, we couldn't find one. And we had three <laughs> guitar players, and they were both better, they were both better guitar players than I was as far as, um, what I had was feel. 
and um i could you know i could i could set the feel with the bass as well as i could playing rhythm guitar and so i just you know it was a desperate move but mccartney was doing it and i looked at him and said shit man it can be done you can sing lead play bass it's he's doing it and it sounds great so why not All right. Um, I will reach out to uh, Michael to set up set two. Bless you. Listen, man, I just want to say, like, stay on the righteous path. Thank you for all your contributions. And like I said, there are very few cats that are able to reach inside somebody's soul. And and like your mom was crying that day. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, man. And And so... Gratitude is the attitude, and I'm incredibly grateful that you spent some time with me today, man. We'll do it again. Good. Yeah, but, you know, that was her. She gave me permission. She knew my old man went to Harvard and was an accountant and that they expected me to go to some, you know, good school and and do something that, and become an engineer because I had very high math skills. And um, she, I think she realized that afternoon that that wasn't going to happen. She had a, she'd had a counselor tell me, tell her when I was 10, you know, I wouldn't be. And after I appeared in a, in a, a show singing the old Chisholm trail with a, a little cowboy hat on, oh, whoa. She, she said, uh, you know, I wouldn't believe, I wouldn't be surprised if this is his calling. <laughs> uh, and I thought, my that must have scared the shit out of my mother. Oh, God well, bless. you know, I think it's so beautiful, and she and she she basically was. In the there end. are other stories like that too. Like, why not let him do what he loves? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the point. It, it, yeah. It's just just an innocent time, man. And uh, so, stay the course, baby. We'll talk soon, man. Much love. All right, man. all right. That's wonderful. You're doing a great right. job. Thank you, man. thank Stay you, brother. All, all right. right, be cool. Bye. Yeah. Bye.